Really excited to see you all today. Glad to be with you. I bring greetings from the men's retreat. Uh, the guys are still up there. Uh, hopefully the fire stayed lit with the temperatures that they've had. And uh, we had a wonderful time this weekend. AJ here and I, we came back last night to get prepared for the service today. But there is a huge crowd of guys up there who have enjoyed the weekend. All the ammunition has been shot. All the fish have been caught. Uh, all the snoring has been done. They will be joining you today smelling like hot garbage uh, when they come back to your home. So uh, good luck. Have the soap, shampoo, and scrub brushes ready. So uh, we're in week three of a series here at Victory Life called Repossessed. And the whole idea is about uh, godly wisdom for uh, bringing joy into your home. I uh, really wanted to get back and continue this series with you this morning. And so if you have your Bibles today, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that precedes a passage. Uh, The most famous scripture in the New Testament, if you will, on marriage and family is the end of Ephesians chapter 5. And getting into Ephesians chapter 6, it's, it's uh, something that you preach from a lot when you uh, do weddings and when you're talking about family life. And so we're going to look at the passage today just prior to that that begins to set the stage for that family life. And as we were developing the series and thinking about it, the, the thought occurred to me that most people in most homes wish their home was a bit more joyful. And we truly have a strong conviction here, a belief that doesn't waver, that to align our life with godly principles and the things that the Scripture calls us to will bring more joy into our lives and thereby bring more joy into our homes. Most of us wish our homes were more joyful. And if I were to ask you what would make your home more joyful, I'd probably receive a lot of different answers from a lot of different people. Some of you are thinking right now, my home would be more joyful if my spouse had listened to week one of your message, of your series, right? Or, or my home would be more joyful if my wife had listened to the Mother's Day sermon from last week. Uh, my home would be more joyful. But there's, there's a ton more to it. A lot of us have an interest in feeling like our home would be more joyful if we just had a little more money. Our home would be more joyful if we just had a little more time. Our home would be more joyful if we were just a little less busy. I remember being a kid, and my dad would sometimes look at my brothers and I and just say, this is not a bed and breakfast. And what he meant was, is all we were doing was eating and sleeping at home, and uh, there was no quality time happening in our family anymore because we were teenagers and we were all out the door. Some people feel like their home would be more joyful if they could just get the projects done that they uh, are stacking up and they feel like are always there, and if they could just get their home and their yard to be the way that they absolutely want it to be, then they can finally be joyful. Uh, Some of you feel like if your family wasn't so addicted to uh, media and screens and, and technology that your home would be more joyful. And the truth is that there is wisdom in so much of that. There's truth to so many of those things. There are what I like to call joy zappers. They zap the joy right out of your home. And, uh, It can be somebody who's not tender and and caring. It can be uh, situations that have not yet been remedied. But what I have found in my 10 years now of of pastoring 
is that even for people with the most perfect life conditions, there isn't a direct correlation to joy. Even folks that uh, have what I would call the, the, the perfect American dream family, quote-unquote, with, with enough money to not be worried about money, uh, with enough uh, uh, support from the church, that doesn't necessarily mean the joy is derived from that. Because we exist in this human condition of constantly believing, if I just had this, I'd be happy. If I just had that, joy would come. If I just could get to a certain place, have a certain thing, acquire a certain thing, have a certain experience, then I would be joyful. But the problem with that thinking is on the other side of the if is the new if. You get all the ifs figured out, and then those are just replaced by a bunch of more ifs. And then joy never comes. Today I want to take you to a passage that I believe begins to help us as people recognize how to truly have joy in our lives. And today I want to just go from this perspective. From a perspective of realizing that joy in your home does have to do with some of the if conditions. And that's why we're going to sit down in this series and take some time this month and next month to talk about some of those ifs and talk about godly wisdom for your home. But today I want to go a little bit deeper than the ifs and go right for your heart. And to say that joy in your home begins with you and the state of joy in your life. If you're constantly looking to the ifs of the other people in your household, if they just get into line and do what I need them to do and be the people I need them to be, joy will never come. And if you're looking at material stuff and going, if, if, if we finally get all that stuff done, accomplished, bought, received, joy will never come. Joy in your home isn't dependent on if, it's dependent on you. I want to take you to the passage that directly precedes some of the best scripture on marriage and family in the whole Bible and see what Paul was trying to get our minds wrapped around before he turned our brains towards thinking about our home life. Are you in Ephesians chapter 5? We're going to be reading 15 and following. Be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you're looking down in your Bibles, what do you have? You have a new subject heading, don't you? Yeah, a new subject heading, talking all about the Christian household, the Christian family, wives and husbands. And Paul has set the stage with these five, six verses here, just preceding uh, 521. Give thought to how you're living, he says, at least in my version, right? Give thought to how you're living. You're doing that right now. Congratulations. You are 0.5% towards a happier home in this moment because you came to church today. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is you are one of the small percentage of the population in our country today, who attends church and gives thought to how you're living at least weekly. Think about that for a minute. 
I mean, if, if church served no other purpose, if we didn't sing songs to God, if we didn't see our friends, uh, if, if we didn't have good programs for the kids, if we didn't get a free coffee mug for showing up the first time or because we stole it uh, from behind the Welcome Center when no one was looking, if we didn't get any of that, we're watching you. If we didn't get any of that, uh, what you have done here just by attending is giving yourself the chance to evaluate the way that you're living. That's wisdom right there. That's smart. That's putting yourself in position to attain more joy because you have come into a place where you are self-evaluating. And most people don't self-evaluate until they hit rock bottom, until life gets really, really rough, and then they begin to think about how they're living. But you're taking the opportunity every week to evaluate your life by the standards that God has given us in his word and by the accountability that comes with being part of a church family, and to be able to be here and learn how to be the person that God intended you to be. So congratulations, we're somewhat there. Keep on coming to church. But what Paul does for us is he gives us four opposites right here about what it means to be a person living in this thing that we call Christianity as opposed to what you were doing beforehand. And they're going to help us understand how we can attain some more joy in our personal lives that then will translate into our households. Four opposites. First, he says, do not be unwise, but be wise. Do not be unwise, but be wise. Now, we've already seen in the first two weeks of this series that the Bible is very consistent on where wisdom begins and how wisdom comes to fruition. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fact that we take God seriously and take the things that God says seriously put us in a position to live wise lives. And before we came to Christ, before we uh, started coming to church, for those of you who don't uh, claim to be a Christian yet at this point in in the stage of your journey, for, for, for anybody who is beginning to pay attention to what the prophets and the apostles have written in the scriptures and what the tradition and history of the church has passed down to the people of God, when you begin to pay attention to those things and begin to take God seriously and what God says seriously, you begin to attain wisdom. And you be, when you begin to apply those concepts and those principles to your life, wisdom begins to come to fruition. And so once again, way to go being here this morning. Because this is part of that journey, part of attaining wisdom. Not that I myself am standing here as a paragon of wisdom. I'm standing here as somebody who has taken time to study the scriptures and try and study the history of the church and to study the way the, the, the scriptures have been interpreted and then to look back and go, all right, how can we best embody this as people? And I get the opportunity to bring that to you every Sunday. The second bit of opposites that Paul brings to us is he says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. Uh, If you were reading maybe another version of the Bible, literally it says, redeem the time. Make the time of your life redemptive rather than just getting into a place where your life is engulfed by evil stuff. The times are evil could be so many different things to so many different people. And we're not quite sure what exactly Paul means by saying the days are evil, other than to say uh, we can juxtapose that with redeeming the time. And redeeming the time has the concept that your life is purposeful. It has meaning. You're not just wavering and, and, and 
going along the waves of this life. You're not just uh, some person being tossed about in the wind and the waves of your situation, but in spite of everything that this world throws at you, you have the opportunity to live a purposeful life. It's why Jesus preached so much about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. He was trying to say, when you get rid of your own little petty kingdom, when you stop living just for yourself and begin to live for God, you become part of something so much greater, so much more important than the little life that you're now leading. You have the opportunity to partner with God in bringing about the things that will redeem humanity and make things right again. That's your purpose, and that's the reason that God gave you breath. And so when it says, redeem the time because the days are evil, he's really saying that you should be living in that purposeful place. Now, people who are just being blown about by the wind and waves and don't feel like their life has any purpose or meaning certainly lack joy. They don't have much of joy at all because they're just affected by what's going on around them. But people with purpose and meaning are folks that walk through the wind and the waves in order to accomplish the task that God's given them to do on this earth. And so it's, it's important that we look at these scriptures and go, yeah, th- this is what life should look like. I'm beginning to evaluate my life by the things that God has laid down as important. I'm beginning to recognize that God gave me breath, and since he gave me breath and is allowing me to live, and somehow I have become connected to God's will for my life through his son, Jesus, I now have this opportunity to do the things that God created me to do. So that's the second of these four opposites. The third of these four opposites is important as well. Don't be foolish, but discern what is the will of the Lord. So foolish on the one hand is to just go about doing whatever you want to do and thinking however you want to think and evaluating by whatever measures you want to evaluate. But on the other side of that, and the beautiful thing that you have by means of the Holy Spirit as a gift in your life, is that you can know that which God wants you to do. You can know those things. You have access now to God's heart and mind for your life. That God could speak to you in prayer and allow you to do the things that he is calling you to do. So the beautiful thing is you just don't have to come here and listen to me about what God wants you to do. You have the opportunity to go home and to read the scriptures and to pray and to to get into a place of quiet and to push out some things from your mind and say, God, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? What is it in response to maybe the situations in my life? that you want to do in and through me. So don't be foolish. Don't just go about without any plan, without any purpose, without any meaning. But recognize that you have the opportunity to listen to God and to allow him to change you. So those are some of the three things that in these first four opposites here that I want to just to bring to your attention because they're going to play into the end of the message here. But you, right now, because you have at least begun to experience a life in and with Christ, have the opportunity to live wise, to live purposefully, and to live with understanding. Be perceptive about what it is you're supposed to be doing and why you're supposed to be doing it. But understand what the will of the Lord is. But it's this fourth opposite that I want to focus on today. Because there's an opposite that Paul gives us, and then he ends with a flourish. And if you're reading the scripture and Paul ends with a flourish, you should pay attention to what happened right before the flourish. 
All right? Now you say, what do you mean by end with a flourish? Well, let's go ahead and read verse 18, 19, and 20 again, and let's experience, re-experience the flourish. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you feel the flourish? This is the flourish, right? There's the flourish. And the flourish has to do with the fourth opposite, and I believe that it is the center, the central aspect of this teaching that helps us get closer to being a person of joy. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You say, that's it? That's what I came here for today, Pastor Matt? You're telling me that the joy in my life is all determined by whether or not I get drunk or not? No. No. If that were the case, then there would be no flourish. It would just be like, don't get drunk with wine, because that's a bad idea. I'm out. But that's not what Paul did. He gives us verse 19 and 20 with this big uh, uh, understanding of what he's trying to get us at when he says, don't be drunk with wine. He says, don't be drunk with wine because that's debauchery. Now that is an outdated term. How many of you used debauchery in conversation this week, right? (laughs) If you raise your hand, you're lying. Nobody did. Nobody says debauchery. I looked at debauchery, I thought, I don't even know what debauchery is. So I got on my trustydictionary.com and I found out what debauchery was, right? Debauchery is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure. I didn't say sexual pleasure, I said sensual. Eyes, ears, mouth, nose, touch. Excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure. It's a completely outdated word, and it's a completely outdated phrase, because our culture is based on debauchery, right? If you look at that definition, excessive indulgence and sensual pleasure, is that not what American culture is completely based in, right? Go have a great time. Go have Miller time, but please drink responsibly, right? Go get drunk in a responsible way, right? I mean, that's what our entire culture is based in, is excessive indulgence. You need, you need, you need to get hold of something. You need that. You need to get this. You need to enjoy this. And if you're not, you're not really living. That's debauchery. It it, it comes a little closer to home for us when we translate that term into excessive indulgence and and sensual pleasure. Because when you read it in the scriptures, oftentimes debauchery is linked to drunkenness and immoral sexuality. And you say, well, why is it most often linked to that in biblical times? Well, what else were they going to do? Right? (laughs) I mean, really. They worked really hard. It was a hard knock life for those people, right? About the only thing that you could engage in debauchery with was sex and alcohol, right? We have so much more to engage in debauchery with, don't we? I mean, you've been debauched with your smartphone all week, and you know it, right? Excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure, right? Eyes, 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 there I am. I'm on my smartphone. We can excessively indulge in sensual pleasure far more than ancient cultures can because we live in the most comfortable age in the history of humanity. Well, I take that back. There was the Garden of Eden. But other than that, 
the most comfortable age in the history of humanity, don't we? There is so much that we could be excessively engaged in uh, that, that's not healthy for us. And so Paul says, don't get drunk with wine because that's debauchery. Uh, just previous verses in chapter 5, he's already talked about uh, uh, wrongful sexual relations. The Bible calls it fornication. He's already been there. So he's just hitting the other one and he's out, right? Because there, there weren't a lot of things that in the ancient world you would consider debauchery. But for us, we have so many things that we can engage in that are excessive sensual pleasure. Perhaps the other term that this can be translated as from the Greek is going to be a little more helpful in our understanding. The other way that our Bibles sometimes translate this word, debauchery, is dissipation. You all know what, to, what the word dissipate means? Uh, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Now, dissipation, thanks to trustydictionary.com, is mental distraction, amusement, and diversion. Mental distraction, amusement, and diversion. And perhaps if we link that up with the term debauchery, we could say excessive mental distraction, amusement, and diversion. And here's the issue that the readers of Paul were facing then. And here's the issue that is just so true of us today. Is there is something inherent in the human condition that says, if I can just engage in the sensual pleasure that I want to engage in, in this instant, joy will be the derivative. But it's not true. It's not. Back in college, I liked to hop. Well, my roommate's name was Jason Weeble. We called him the Weeb. In fact, we'd say Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. 19, anyways. I've just dated myself. Anyhow... Jason and I would be sitting there late at night, and we'd be watching some basketball on TNT, and we'd look at each other from across the room, and we knew why we were looking at each other. And then we'd look at each other with a smirk on our faces a little bit later on in the evening, and we knew why we were looking at each other. And finally, he would look at me and say, let's head out. And I'd say, no, no, let's not do it. It's not a good idea. And he'd say something like, it is a good idea. And a few minutes later, I'd look at him, and I'd say, you know what, dude, let's go hop in the car, let's get out of here. And, and, and he'd say, no, you're right, it's not a good idea. We should not do that. And I'd say, no, we shouldn't. And then we'd get to halftime, and we'd look at each other and say, let's go. So we'd scrounge all the money we had together, and we'd hop in the car, and you know where we were heading because it was college. We were going to Taco Bell for fourth meal. We'd get there and we'd order our cheesy bean and rice burrito and our cheesy gordita crunch and cheesy, 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 cheese. And we'd get home and it'd be the third quarter and we would scarf down our Taco Bell and then we'd look at each other and from across the room and the smirk was now a frown. I'd say, we shouldn't have done that. And he'd say, no, we shouldn't have done that. And I'd say, I hate myself right now. He says, I hate myself too. Debauchery. Right? right? Where you don't eat till you're full, you eat till you hate yourself, you know? And there's no way to eat and not hate yourself when it comes to Taco Bell. Don't tell anybody I said that, but it's true, right? Because there is something in our human condition, something in our mind that says, if I can just meet the sensual pleasure of the moment, eye, ear, 
mouth, nose. Like, I have trouble with nose. Like, I still, I've yet to meet the person who's, like, sniffing a Yankee candle too much, you know. <sighs> oh, I'm sorry, Lord. You know, put that down. Uh, so I don't know about the nose. I don't know about the nose. But let's go with the other four senses. You can certainly be debauched with the other four senses. To the point where we keep telling ourselves, if I could just have that, I'd be happy. And it, it goes from the place of, for those of you who, uh, who drink, it goes from the place of, ah, I had a drink, to I need a drink. Right? We get to the place where we need something, as opposed to, ah, I want something. That is dissipation. I need to get to my phone right now to see what is happening in the world. I need it. Mental distraction, amusement, diversion, excessive indulgence, and sensual pleasure. You say, what are you trying to do, ruin my life today? No. I'm trying to get you to think about how the Bible would have you think about joy. Because the word of God is true. And it's got some wisdom for us here. What's the other side of debauchery and dissipation? Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. You know that Spirit of God that Jesus promised that would allow believers to have a direct pipeline to what God wanted them to do in their lives? And what will that cause? Verse 19 and 20. That will cause singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and in everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the picture of a happy person. I've yet to meet a miserable person singing a hymn, you know. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God. No. Miserable people don't sing songs to God, right? They don't. Hymns and songs and spiritual songs overflowing in worship. What's described here is three different aspects of someone who's really enjoying life. They're able to sing and enjoy the presence of God in their life in a group. They're able in their hearts. Did you catch the second part of verse Verse 19 there, they're making melody in their hearts to God. They're happy inside. They're not whistling while they work because they're miserable. They're whistling while they work because they're happy. And they're giving thanks at all times and in all things. That's the picture of a happy person. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his many uh, theological works. I know most of you know him for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he was actually quite the theologian. And he was talking about how he was at a stage in his life where he knew that he believed in Jesus, and he knew that he wanted to be a Christian, and he was beginning to try to understand why Christians worshipped, and why Christians praised, and why, you know, in his day, in the early part of the 20th century, why in his day, People were in such rapture as they sang the psalms and hymns and the songs of the church. And he was trying to come to terms with it personally, and he made this quote. He said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious praised most, while the cranks and the misfits 
and the malcontents praised least. And he meant that not just in a church service. He meant that overall in terms of life. That the happiest people are the ones who allow praise to proceed from their lips and allow joy to come out of their mouth and to say, wow, wasn't that great? Wasn't that wonderful? That was just spectacular. That was phenomenal. That was a, that was a cool experience. That was a wonderful thing. So he realized this as a general concept. Not a Christian concept, but a general concept. That the happiest people were the ones who praised the most. Because true enjoyment of a thing, or should I say, fullest enjoyment of a thing, comes when we also praise the thing. In essence, you might be watching the Cavs in the playoffs and saying to yourself, well, they look really good. They're hitting a lot of threes. But full enjoyment of that is for you to look at your buddy and go, can you believe this? Eight threes. It's part of the human condition, but not in a bad way. To recognize that enjoyment of a thing is in praise of that thing. The problem is, when we engage merely in praise of sensual pleasures, eventually the joy and the fulfillment that comes from them run dry. It runs dry. Eventually the enjoyment and the fulfillment that comes from created things runs dry. It no longer brings the same sense of pleasure and enjoyment and awe and wonder and splendor. I like to watch a show called American Pickers. Anybody ever seen it? Guys go around and they find hoarders. Yes, hoarders. But they try to find hoarders with cool stuff that can then be bought and resold. And so they go into these people's houses, and they're usually a very old gentleman who is somewhat weird. Okay, really weird. If you're a hoarder, we got to talk. Celebrate recovery is coming. Uh, And they go into these homes, and they begin to look through all the junk that these people have accumulated in hopes of finding something that has value to a collector. They pay the person for it, and they baggle, and then they go off and sell it in their store. And it's incredible. Gina made mention of this to me the other day. She says, do you notice something? I said, what? She says, almost every one of those hoarders says that the day that the pickers came was one of the best days that they've had in a long, long time. I began to think about that. I thought, why? Because someone, for the first time in years, had come through and started to say, hey, your stuff's really cool. What a great sign. What a neat collection. And it affirms the sensual pleasure that they've been enjoying for all those years. Right? How cool. Someone's praising their stuff. I wonder what happens the next day when the praise goes away. And it's just stuff again. When we allow the Spirit of God to come into our lives, begin to change us, mold us, move us, create the people that God has created to be in us, all of a sudden, a couple of things take place. One, 
we begin to worship and appreciate the creator rather than the created thing. We begin to worship and appreciate the God who spun this universe into motion that had such a love and compassion for the crown of his creation, human beings, that he allowed his son to come and live life as we did and make atonement for our sins through his blood on the cross so that we might come into right relationship with him and we are in awe and praise of that fact. We begin to praise our God not only because of what the the, uh, scholars would call his transcendence, the awesomeness of creation, but we begin to praise God because of what the theologians call the imminence, the fact that God's with us and he is part of our lives and he wants what's best for us. How incredible. That's who the creator is. That's what we praise At the start of our conversation with God, as we go from unwise to wise, as we go from an evil existence to a redeeming existence, as we go from a foolish existence to an understanding existence, we begin to praise God because of who Jesus Christ was and his work on the cross. So that when we come into a place like this and we sing songs about the cross and what Jesus did and who he is to us and the fact that he has pulled us out of the life that we were living, we are full of joy because we think about the person we would have been if God had not stepped into our lives and begun to change us. There's praise and there's enjoyment and there's wonder in that. And that's why Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be full of debauchery, but let the Spirit fill you and begin to tune your heart to the song of God and what he's doing in your life and what he has the potential to do in your life. As God redeems you and makes you and molds you into the person that you're supposed to be, then you're going to overflow with those psalms and hymns and songs of praise, so much so that even when you leave church, there's still going to be a melody in your heart. There's still going to be a song in your heart and a pep in your step because you recognize what your life would have been if God had not interceded on your behalf. That's where joy begins because you're no longer living in foolishness. You're no longer being unwise. You're no longer having a life without meaning, but instead your life begins to take on the reflection of wisdom and the reflection of redemption, and the reflection of purpose that happens when we give our lives to Christ Jesus, and it brings joy. But that's not the end of the story, because verse 20 is yet to come. He says this in verse 20, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only does our praise derive from our relationship with God and to God, but the joy and the capacity for joy in our lives begins to increase because we see everything in our lives as a gift from him. Every good thing as a gift from our Father in heaven. You know, AJ says it sometimes as he leads us into worship. He'll stand here at the microphone and and he'll see a crowd that's coming in and maybe a little bit depressed and he'll say, I just thanked God for my hot shower this morning. And you think, that's so mundane. Is it? I mean, you're, you're in the first century of hot showers, people. 
in the history of humanity. The first century of that. And all that he's saying is, don't you have reason to praise because of the good things in this world? As opposed to engaging in dissipation to feel the needs and the wants and I gotta get that if I'm gonna be happy. As opposed to I am happy for what I have and what I've been given and what God has blessed me with right now. What a joy. Thank you, God. And to move, as, as Paul says in Romans 125, not, not from the worship of created things, but move into the worship of the creator. Someone who never fails, who, who our worship is not wasted on. Who our praise is, is never wasted on. Because of his goodness and his rightness and his power and his mercy. So we have this opportunity to recognize in our lives today that we can move from dissipation into joy. Because the opposite of dissipation is not wise living. The opposite of dissipation is joy. When we begin to recognize that more stuff and more ifs and more if onlys can be replaced right now with thanksgiving and happiness and joy and thank you God. And that's what I want you to think about for the next few minutes. What does your home look like? Is your home a home that glories in dissipation? Or is your home a home that is beginning to operate in joy because of the way the Holy Spirit is moving and changing your line of thinking and your line of understanding? Not only from closeness to the Lord so that you sing psalms and hymns and make a melody to him in your heart, but that everything that you do is full of thanksgiving. So that when you do enjoy some sensual pleasure, which the Bible is not against, by the way, the Bible is against dissipation. The Bible is not against you enjoying a beautiful meal. The Bible is not against you having a wonderful, loving relationship with your spouse. The Bible is not against the, the concepts of things that, that, that bring us happiness. But the question that we as Christians should be asking ourselves on a regular basis is, am I trying to derive joy from that which is dissipation? And debauchery, or am I truly living in joy because I'm full of thanksgiving for whatever comes my way? Thank you, God. As I sat and watched a show on my cable the other night, this is not me, but perhaps you, I don't have cable, I got a Roku, I'm saving more money than you. <laughs> but as I sit and watch a show, can I truly go, thank you, God, that I got to relax and watch a show? As opposed to the dissipation that so many of us are in. I have to get to my show. I have to see it. I have to watch it. I've got to rewind it four times. I've got to watch it again. Because if I can just see the next episode, then I will truly be happy. And then you're in what's called a show hole because the season ends, right? And you don't know what to do with yourself for the next four months. So you've got to find another show to fill the void. We do this with television and technology and alcohol and sex. There's so many things we do this with. And it's the opposite of joy. And the Bible is saying, folks, you know Jesus. It's time to live wise. It's time to redeem the time. It's time to have joy. It's time to have a song in your heart and some pep in your step and some joy in your home because your joy is derived from your relationship to God and the fact that you understand that he is good and he is for you and he wants good things for you and everything that you have is a gift from him.
everything. My favorite picture in the whole church is in AJ's office. It's Paul and Silas sitting in the stocks. They're in jail. And they're just laughing in the stocks. Heads thrown back. The Bible says that they praise the Lord even in spite of being in prison. In the first chapter of James, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. And you read that and you go, that's just stupid. Why would I consider that pure joy? Because a redeemed mindset goes, you know, God's going to teach me something through this. And I'm going to come out a more mature person because of what I faced. Thanksgiving at all times and all things. If I could say one thing to you that if you don't leave with any other thing but this today, is I want you to begin to evaluate your actions and your mindset and your heart's behavior. And to say, God, I'm looking to a lot of ifs, hoping that joy will be restored in my home. But my home, perhaps, is a place of dissipation where my spouse and my kids, my roommate, whomever, is based in the fact that I will be happy if I can just get the things that I need. And I want to tell you, God has something better. You need to move from the fleeting joy of need into the full joy of appreciation. Appreciating what God has done in your life, what he's doing in your life, the good things that he's given, because you can have all the right conditions and you can come and you can make a laundry list of all the things that we preach in this pulpit for the next six weeks in repossess godly wisdom for your home. But if you do not derive joy the way the Bible's teaching us to derive joy, you're never going to be happy. Because you're going to move from need to need and want to want while all the while God's saying, I'm trying to give you joy. Will you receive it? Begin to praise, begin to worship, begin to be thankful. Begin to allow the Holy Spirit to remake what makes you happy. And for those of you who are new to this whole Christian thing and you think, Pastor Matt, this is the most weird ethereal thing that I've heard all week. I want to encourage you that God has created you with a purpose and he loves you and he doesn't want your life to just be about if, 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 if. He wants your life to be full of joy because it's full of purpose and meaning and thanksgiving because creator God has loved you. For those of you who've known that for a long time, you evaluate dissipation today. But for those of you who are just beginning to recognize that, I encourage you, God's got a better way, a happier way, a more joyful way for you to participate in this thing we call life. Would you bow your heads and pray with me today? God, we just thank you today for your word. We thank you today that you have created each one of us with a capacity for joy and a capacity for fulfillment. But Lord, the only place to fulfill that capacity is in you. The water tastes sweeter when we're giving thanks to God for it. And the relaxation is better when we recognize it's a gift from the Lord that we have the time. The sense of purpose is fulfilled 
would say, God, what is it that you would have me do? And that wisdom can come when you say, God, what's next for me in my life? Father God, I pray that we would not derive our joy from the things that dissipate. But instead, Lord, that we would turn our attention, our affection, and our appreciation towards the God who created us and who loved us enough to bring us into right relationship with him through his son. We thank you today, Lord, for your word. We thank you today, Lord, for your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning?